Oh, well, good morning. It's great to be together once again to study the Word of God together. I'll ask you, if you would, to just bow with me for a word of prayer as we begin our time. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this morning, for this opportunity to, to worship and to hear from you, from your Word. We thank you that even in these strange times, we can worship in this way, we are grateful that there are those uh, not in this building, but outside this building who are able to be able to see it and to hear it. We're grateful that we have these uh, abilities. Lord, we do ask that you would attend to this time. We know in your providence and in your care, we are in this moment. And we know that you always exalt your word, even above your very name. And so we pray that this morning, as we hear your word, as we look into it, that we would receive it as it is, the Word of God, and that it would change our lives. It is living, it is active, and it is, as you say, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing down even to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so we pray that our hearts would be changed, that it would be exposed where it needs to be exposed, and we would be able to address the issues at hand in our own hearts as we seek to serve you. So attend to our time this morning, Lord, as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'll ask you with me to take your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. We are coming to another subdivision, if you will, in Paul's epistle, as he continues to give us instruction concerning how we are to behave as Christians. And I want to begin, as we normally do, by just reading for us the passage uh, that I want us to focus our attention on, and that will be verses 1 to 12 that we'll begin to focus our attention on this morning and over the next few weeks. So if you would follow along as I read chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. The Apostle Paul says, Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats, does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself. And not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both a Lord, both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or... You again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. All of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, as Christians, we hold to the truth that the Bible is the very Word of God. 
that it is authoritative for all of life. That what it says is absolute truth because it is the very breath of God to man. It's exactly what Paul said to Timothy. The scriptures are God-breathed. And being God-breathed, we understand and recognize that the Word of God is filled with direct and clear commands for us to live by. These commands, of course, reflect both the very nature and the very character of God. And they are given to us both for our good and for His glory. We know that the Bible says, Thou shalt not murder. Or we could say, do not murder. And so we don't murder. And we seek to apply that in the laws of the land and those kinds of things. We are not to murder. It says, do not commit adultery. And of course, we understand that to be not only in act, but in thought. And so we strive as Christians to live by that command. The Bible tells us that God hates liars, that we are to be truth speakers. And so we speak truth in all areas of life, or that's what we should be doing. It says that we are to love one another, that we are not to forsake the assembling together of the body, that we aren't to have an attitude by which we just disregard the being together with the people of God. Of course, we understand it to say many, many other things. All those commands are clear. All of those are not difficult for any of us who are Christians to understand. And we know if and when those commands are being violated in our own lives. We, we know that. We know if we are lying, for example. But we also know that there are a whole host of things in life, decisions that we make and things that we need to decide whether to do or not to do, for which we do not have direct commands in Scripture. For example, thinking about it this week. The Bible doesn't tell me. I didn't open the Scriptures in Genesis all the way to Revelation and find a verse and find a book and find a reference to the very wife that I was to marry. It didn't say to me, Terry, hey, go marry Rebecca. It didn't say that. There was no chapter, no verse that tells me in Scripture whether I should buy insurance or not buy insurance whether I should have life insurance or not have life insurance. It doesn't tell me what kind of car I should be driving. It doesn't even tell me what kind of foods and drinks I should be drinking. In other words, there are many, many things that fall into what we might call gray areas. Activities and duties things that we do in life, things that we are to think about and have to think about in life, decisions that we need to make in life for which we have no direct command in Scripture. And so the question that arises is this. Since it is so imperative that we are to be careful how we are to behave, ensuring that we are behaving properly, just as we learned in Romans chapter 13 and verse 13, it says that explicitly, let us behave properly as in the day. And talking about the day, behave in such a way as we are living as if Christ is coming right now. If we are to behave properly, then how are we going to make the correct choice in the gray areas of life? How am I going to make those decisions, ensuring ensuring as a Christian that I am behaving properly so that God is glorified through my loving Him with my whole heart, my whole mind, and my whole strength as we are commanded, and then continuing to love my neighbor as myself? How am I going to make those decisions? Well, 
The Apostle Paul is going to help us with this, beginning here in chapter 14. And we're going to get into that over the next several weeks as we think through this passage. But we need to have a few things in our minds as we begin to think about this. And the first is that we cannot let the truth of chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, begin to fade in our minds in any kind of way. Right? We remember what it said. We cannot forget what we have been exhorted about in those verses because it is the truth of chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 that undergird or rule over, if you will, Paul's entire argumentation throughout these chapters. Remember what he said? I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, that which is acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So, as we deal with what is here in chapter 14, we have to keep those two verses Uh, of chapter 12 in our minds because they drive all of the action that we find here in chapters 14 following. In other words, if we solidly have those, the principles of verse chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 in our minds all of the time, and we are living with that attitude, uh, a living sacrifice to God. I'm offering myself continually in every moment, in every situation, with every word and every deed to God as a holy sacrifice to God, one that is acceptable to God, then I'll have no trouble practicing what is here in chapter 14. So when we think through this, we can see that the Scriptures are very, very practical. Sometimes we approach the Scriptures, sometimes we get to the Scriptures and we think about life and we go, okay, yeah, the Scriptures have commands for this and commands for this and commands for this and commands for this, but I don't have a command to make this decision or that decision. One of these gray areas of life. And so we sometimes get this idea that the Scriptures aren't as practical for us, that they're just this this high book of moral standards, but I they really don't affect life at all. And yet when we think about it, when we think about Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, in light of how we should, and we come to Romans chapter 14, we can see that the scriptures are very practical. They deal with every area of life. And we also understand from our study that becoming a Christian doesn't magically solve all of our problems. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that we still have to live in this world, right? We get saved. We, we know Jesus Christ by faith. We've repented of our sin. Our relationship between us and God is now secure because God has justified us by faith in Jesus Christ. That relationship is, is secure. And yet we still are here and we still have to live in this world as Christians. And we have to interact with people just as they are. We have to deal with Christians and non-Christians. We have to deal with the saved and the unsaved. We have to live with and under good laws and bad laws. And so we remember that Paul summed up our last few studies by exhorting us to live knowing that our time here is limited, knowing that our time here is at the end, that Christ is returning at any moment. And therefore, we should be living in recognition of that moment every day. We should be living with our eyes fixed on the return of Christ by being prepared for His coming. And that should motivate us to behave properly. But sometimes, admittedly, as Christians, it can be difficult. Difficult for us to know which way to live. Which way to go? What decision should I make? If I go this way, is that going to be wrong? If I go this way, is that going to be wrong? Especially when the Bible hasn't given us direct commands. 
And so here in chapter 14, Paul begins to address the gray areas in Christian living. In other words, it's not as if we have no instruction. It's not as if we have nothing on which we can lean for these decisions on how to live when there's no clear command in Scripture. We have instruction, but it takes the form of general principles rather than direct commands. And these principles, these are principles that help us navigate these areas where true Christians can hold a lot of differing viewpoints, a lot of differing thoughts on certain things. You say, what kind? Well, for example, what kind of movie should a Christian watch? Some are going to say you can watch these kind of movies, and it's only these kind of movies it's okay to watch. Others are going to say, well, that's not exactly true. I can watch this kind of movie, and it really doesn't seem to affect me all that much. What kind of movies should we watch? What kind of clothing should we wear? Well, as we said, there is no black or white answer given in Scripture about those kinds of things. They're what we call, or what I call, gray areas. And we might even call these, we might even call these areas of conscience. Areas of conscience. Now, the ones that Paul addresses here, specifically in Romans chapter 14, have to do with food and the setting apart of certain days as holy days. And of course, these were big issues. In the early church, most of the people who got saved out of, or in the early church, were saved out of paganism, saved out of uh, religions whereby food uh, was a big part of their worship, and especially sacrificing of animals to their gods, whatever that was. And so this was a big issue. And certain days you did certain things, and other days you didn't do certain things. And so in the pagan worship that they came out of, all of this baggage was dragged in with them. And much of those practices came with them into their Christianity. And so Paul is addressing those here, but but really in a general sense, because we may not have issues with food or with holy days in a specific sense. Some of us may, some may not. But Paul is not just addressing those. This is a, a general principle by which we deal with these areas of conscience. And so here's the question for us this morning and for the next few weeks. How do we live with each other? How do we interact with each other when our views on these kinds of things vary? How do we deal with these things? How do we interact with each other when our views on these areas differ? How are we to process these decisions and how are we to behave In other words, what direction do we walk in these decisions in reference to one another? And I think these are important questions because our behavior will either reflect or deflect upon the gospel, depending on how we respond. It will either reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ, an attitude of Christ-likeness, or it will deflect in that same kind of way. (coughs) So that's the first thing we need to remember, right? That that Paul is dealing with these. These are general principles that we have to deal with. But there's a second thing that we need to remember as we begin this process, and that is this. Each and every one of us is not the same. I know you say, well, that, that seems like a pretty generic reality. Of course, we're not all the same, right? I know it shouldn't surprise us. And yet sometimes we forget that because with some of us, our greater danger in life, our greater danger as a Christian is tending to go to excesses in certain things. In other words, as a Christian, my conscience may may not be bothered, and it may not be bothered enough in certain areas where it should be bothered. In other words, it may be easy to go in certain directions and make certain decisions on certain things because my conscience just isn't bothered enough by any of that, when maybe it should be bothered by those things. So one extreme is to go there, but the other extreme is for some of us, the danger is that we have hypersensitive consciences. In in other words, our conscience can only handle a real little 
It, it can't handle a whole lot of equivocation. And, and, and so we're, we're hypersensitive to all kinds of things and maybe things we should not be so hypersensitive about and we ought to be able to deal with more. And so on one end, you got this, uh, one sense, a, a liberal open conscience, if you will. And the other sense, you got a hyper conscience that's very constrictive. So how do I live with each other? How do we live with each other in those ways for the sake of the gospel and for the sake that we are not acting like we are God in the lives of others? Hence the title of this message. I remember when I was growing up uh, with my three brothers who were older than me in our home, uh, our, our mother would say at times, who died and made you God? Who died and made you God? And of course, she, she would say that sometimes with, with a sarcastic tone in her voice, but she was saying it because someone in the process was acting as if they were God over the others, as if they were the rule makers, if they were the ones who could call the shots. And just that statement alone for us was like a, a glass of cold water in the face. It shocked us, if you were, and caused us to think about what we were doing, how we were acting. And I think that is what Paul, in one sense, is doing here. He's giving us a shock in the face. He's giving us, after all of this that we've heard, and how we are to live in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, and then we talked a little bit about after that, about how we deal with Christians and how we deal with the world, and then how we deal and respond to citizens in Romans chapter 13, 1 to 7, and all of these different areas whereby we have direct command. And now we come to 14, and it gets a little more fuzzy. And oftentimes we we like to think, well, it needs to be done this way. It should be done this way. Here's how that must be done. And Paul takes this sense of cold water and splashes us in the face. That's what Paul's doing here. Because for us who are part of the church, at least us who are part of Fellowship Bible Church, this isn't the first time we've heard this truth. This isn't the first time we've come across this. We heard about these principles when we studied 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. When we studied through the book of 1 Corinthians, we came to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10. Paul was dealing with the Corinthian brothers and sisters in Christ in these very truths, with this very principle. And so we've seen this before. This isn't new to us. These kinds of things were problems within the early church. And they continue to be problems in the church today. They ought to not be new to us when we look at this. So let's begin to look at chapter 14 together so that we don't act like God over others for the sake of the gospel. Notice what he says here in verse 1. And just for you taking notes, we're not going to get much farther than what we have here, but but I want to hone in on this a bit. Notice what he says. Now, except the one who is weak in faith. Except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. This this is the overarching principle. This is the, the guiding principle that Paul places before us, and then he goes on to explain what he means by that and how that works out in the specific areas that he's addressing. Now, we, we might call this principle exercising deference to others. Exercising deference to others. You, you might even call it the practice of deferring. The practice of deferring. Now, here's the problem we are faced with, right? We all tend to fall into two categories in Christendom, right? We are living as strong in the faith, or we are living as weak in the faith. Those are the two categories. There is no middle ground. You're strong in the faith, you are weak in the faith, and and you're either moving in between those. And no matter what category we are actually in at any given time with any given decision we are making, we all tend to believe that we are in the strong category. We all tend to believe that we are strong in the faith, that when I make the decision, it's out of a strong in the faith position. In other words, none of us would ever believe that we are weak in the faith. But the truth is that we vacillate between both of them. At times, we have 
hypersensitive consciences. Hypersensitive consciences, and they're hypersensitive about certain things, certain little idiosyncrasies I may have, certain things that I may not have have grown in yet. And at other times, we listen to our conscience very little so that we are open to a whole host of potential questionable activities. And so notice the principle that is laid out for us here by the Apostle Paul. Paul says, except the one who is weak in faith. Now, the first thing that I want us to notice here is really a grammatical issue in the text, because Paul is talking here to true Christians. He is talking to true believers. And I need to mention this because most of our translations say here, just as I read it in the New American Standard, accept the one or, or receive him or welcome him. That's what the word means. Who is weak in faith. That's what it says. It's probably what it says in your Bible too. If you have the ESV or you have some other version that's a more of a modern version, even the King James, I believe, says that, right? We are weak in faith. But the original language doesn't simply say weak in faith. It says weak in the faith. The definite article is there. Weak in the faith. In other words, it should be translated that way. Except the one who is weak in the faith. Weak in the faith. And there's a difference between weak in faith and weak in the faith. Being weak in faith means that you believe intellectually in things, but you are not ready to trust yourself to those things. You're weak in faith. You believe in them, you have an intellectual understanding and belief in them, but you're not ready to entrust yourself to them. You're weak in faith. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. That would be an unbeliever. Paul's not talking about that. Paul's talking about believers. He's talking about being weak in the faith. In other words, this is a Christian who is weak and has a weak understanding and confidence of what salvation means in life. It's like I've said before, when it, when it comes to issues in the Christian life, there's, there's really one of three problems or a combination of those three going on in that person's life. Either their understanding of God is skewed in some kind of way, or their understanding of Jesus Christ is skewed in some kind of way, or how and what salvation means in life is skewed in some kind of way, or it's a combination of those. But, but those are the, really the essence of where problems lie and why people do what they do. Well, this is a Christian then that Paul is talking about who has a weak understanding and confidence in what salvation means in life. These are, these are those who are confused about the outworking of their salvation in practical life. They are weak in the faith. And I need to say again, we all fit this category from time to time. We all fit the category of not really grasping and fully understanding what it means to live out our salvation, what we have in Christ, and how that works itself out in relation to other people, in relation to how we act and how we live in the lives of other people for the sake of the gospel. And this is not new to Scripture. In fact, we can see this as the ultimate way in which our Lord deals with His own people. For example, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 35, as, as God is prophesying through Isaiah to the nation of Israel for his promise of restoration of Israel, here's what he says to Israel. Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4. He says, Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, there he now he has just defined the exhausted and feeble at heart. There are those who are anxious. He's not talking about physical exhaustion. He's not talking about physical feebleness. This is spiritual. He says, say to those who are anxious of heart, say to those who are who are not grasping and understanding fully what I've accomplished, say to them, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. 
You see, these people were, were anxious. Man, God's going to judge. Are we going to be part of that? He said they're, they're exhausted in their spirit. They're, they're feeble in their strength. And he's, they're anxious in their heart. They, they don't know what to think. They don't know how to live. They're, what God is, is accomplishing for them, they, they're wondering about. And he says, look, tell them to take courage and fear not. I'm coming, and I'm going to do what I said, but I'm going to save them. Isaiah 42 Verse 3 gives us the same idea. Jesus even quoted these words and when he was in his ministry. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He's not talking about physical trees and physical candles and these kinds of things. This is a spiritual reality. God's going to come and it's going to be an encouraging reality for the weak, the God's encouraging those who are weak. In fact, in fact, through the prophet Ezekiel, God rebukes the leaders of Israel for not doing that. Listen to this, Ezekiel 34, verse 4. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. He doesn't mean physically sick. He means spiritually. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. He says, look, you haven't taken care of those who are part of it, and those who aren't part of it you haven't sought after. But with force and severity you have dominated them. He says, see, you you who consider yourself to be in the strong place have dominated the weak. You haven't cared for them at all. And then in verse 16 of that same chapter, Ezekiel 34, verse 16, he says, I will seek the lost. I'll bring back the scattered. I'll bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong, I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. It's a rebuke to the leaders of Israel for not caring for the people as they should have been caring for them, just as God had designed Um, remembering what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew chapter 14 when Jesus had instructed Peter to get out of the boat and come to him on the water. Peter gets out of the boat, and then after a little bit, a short time, Peter begins to sink. It says in Matthew chapter 14, verse 31, immediately Jesus stretches out his hand and he takes hold of him, and he says to him, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? You have little faith. Why Why did you doubt? Sounds similar to what Isaiah said. And we, we could say it this way. You have anxious heart. You're wondering what, what's going to happen, how God's going to respond. Peter lacked confidence. He was weak. He was feeble because of doubt. I think this is similar to what the Apostle Paul is referring to here in Romans chapter 14 when he says, weak in the faith. It isn't that they're not saved. It isn't that he's talking about unsaved people. It's simply that they're feeble. These are people who lack confidence. It may be because, like Peter, they doubt some truth. That may be why they lack confidence. That may be why their conscience isn't functioning as it ought to be functioned, bound to the Word of God. So the weak in the faith are true Christians. They're weak in the faith, not weak in faith. They are in the faith. These are people who are in the faith. They've been granted forgiveness by God because of repentance. But they are those who, at times, lack the confidence when it comes to living out salvation as they ought, particularly in the gray areas of life. And like I've already said, sometimes we all fit this category. You say, well, how so? How, how is it that, that we all sometimes fit that category? Well, when we begin to relegate our acceptance with God, or the basis for which God accepts us, we relegate it to hinge upon what we do, the very things that we do. When we do that, guess what? We're weak in the faith. We're weak in the faith. In other words, there are times when all of us turn our Christian living, what we do, 
into the reason why or why not God accepts us. We, we turn our practice of Christian living into the reason for which God accepts us into his kingdom. We may not call it that. We may not even define it like that, and yet we live like that. In other words, we treat our justification before God as if it's earned by our behavior rather than on Christ and his righteousness alone. At that moment, we may think we're strong in the faith, and yet we are living weak in the faith. And in doing so, we can easily allow a hyperconscience to rule ourselves and to rule over others of a hypersensitive conscience. Or we could go the other direction and, and allow our liberal conscience exercised through our Christian freedoms and what we do by way of being free in Christ to rule ourselves and others. And the reality is both of those extremes have to be avoided. In fact, here's how the Apostle Paul put it to the believers in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, this is what he said. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see, what the Apostle Paul is saying to the believers in Galatia is this. You're weak in the faith. You think that somehow your efforts and your duty and how you live is what has made you acceptable to God. Remember, he's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to true Christians, Christians in the evangelical church who are having difficulties but they, because they had relegated their justification back to their activity rather than to Christ. And it's like that today. It's like that today. There are true Christians in the evangelical church, and each one of us from time to time can fit the category. We have difficulty in our lives with other people, other Christians, because of differences in behavior. And so what do we do? So what do we do with that? Oftentimes, here's what happens. We see somebody else doing something that we, in our own conscience, go, man, that's the, I shouldn't be doing that. No one should be doing that. And we begin to judge them. We begin to judge them wrongly. And we begin to even fight with them over those things. And we begin to even despise them and get bitter with them. And it becomes a real problem. It becomes a real problem in our own lives. And it becomes a real problem in the life of the church. Because we're saying, boy, if they're doing that, then they must not be a Christian. If they're going to those kind of movies, they must not be a Christian. Here's one, and I'll probably step on a few air hoses when I say this. If they're not getting their children vaccinated, they must not be Christian. Or if they're getting their children vaccinated, they must not be Christians. Or if they're schooling their children, or if they're sending their kids to public school, or whatever it is, well, they must not be Christian. So here we are. We're face-to-face with this basic principle within Christian behavior. Dealing with those who are weak. Dealing with those who are weak. This is the constant issue at hand. This is the constant thing that Paul is going to deal with all along. You say, well, it only says, except the one who is weak in the faith. How do I know he's, he's talking to someone strong? Well, look at what he says in chapter 15. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those who without strength and not just please ourselves. You know he's speaking to the wrong. He's got the two categories, weak in faith, weak in the faith and strong. The exhortation here is to the strong. And the implication in verse 1 is for those who are not weak to accept the one who is weak. And so it's the strong in the faith who are to accept the one who is weak in the faith. It's the strong in the faith who ought to bear the weaknesses 
of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Now, as I said, the tendency when it comes to the gray areas of life and the looking at how others are living, the tendency is if I think that someone else is wrong, then inevitably I'm placing myself, even if in my own mind only, I'm placing myself, I'm assuming that I'm strong. If I look at others and say, well, I can't believe they're doing that, then I'm assuming they're weak and I'm strong, even if that may or may not be the case. So how can I ensure that I am actually strong in the faith? How can I ensure that I'm in the position of being strong in the faith and therefore ensure that I will behave properly before God and to those who are weak in the faith? Maybe the better way to ask the question is this. What is the difference between a weak in the faith person and a strong in the faith person? What's the difference? Or, or maybe, maybe we should ask it this way. What causes strong faith? What causes strong faith? In other words, if I'm looking at everybody else and that's what we do, we can say, well, I don't do that. Well, I can tell you this. If you're saying to yourself, I don't look at people that way, then you're not being strong in the faith. Because the strong in the faith are humble people. Because in order to bear with the weaknesses of those who don't have strength in order to accept those who are weak we got to humble ourselves and so if i'm saying i don't i don't think i don't look at people like that then guess what i'm weak in the faith so we need to find out what causes strong faith because i assume oftentimes and most of the time when i'm living my own christian life as well you do that we're strong in the faith Oh, we may say, well, I have weak areas in my life and these kinds of things. But the reality is we, we think we're in the position of the right, especially when we're living our life. Otherwise, we wouldn't be living it that way. And so how do I know if I'm strong in the faith? What, what makes someone strong in the faith? And I, I just want to spend the, the remainder of our time on a few aspects of this so that we can understand this before we begin to look into this as Paul deals with it starting in verse 2. So let me just give us three factors that influence Christian living, that influence the strengthening of our faith or the lack of the strengthening of our faith. Three, three factors that influence Christian living or Christian strengthening. The number one is this, a lack of biblical teaching. The first factor that influences our Christian living is a lack of of biblical teaching. Some people are weak in the faith because they've never really been taught. You're looking at other people, you're you're assuming that they're doing what they shouldn't be doing, and sometimes we're assuming in the wrong way, and we're looking at them wrongly, but very oftentimes when we look at people and we we can understand that maybe they're just not really taught. Maybe they don't understand exactly what the Bible teaches on a certain thing. It may not be the fault of theirs. There are plenty of genuine Christians in our day and age and throughout the world who are in places that never really teach the truth of God's Word. Plenty of people who know Christ, who have faith in Jesus Christ, who believe unto salvation, and yet they are in places that never really teach the Word of God. They don't know any different. They don't know any different. This is what they've known. Someone was used by God to bring them to faith in Christ. That person themselves was a a babe in Christ themselves. They were uh, weak in the faith, although they might have thought they were strong in the faith, but they're, they're babes in Christ. And they knew that they ought to be in a church, and so they picked the closest church to them. They picked the closest one right around the corner or one nearest to them. Or or the one that was recommended to them and the one that the person who witnessed to them went to. But either way, whatever the circumstance, whatever the reality, they're in a place that only mentions the Bible, 
never really teaches the Bible. They, they talk about extracurricular reading, extracurricular books, and the books that are recommended to, to be read, if recommended at all, are simply just Christian self-help books. Books with psychologized terms, with psychologized ways and practices, with Christian attachments to them. But they're not really the Word of God. Books that give just surface solutions to, to deep heart sin problems. And so what happens? They remain weak. They remain weak. They, they don't know how to make those kinds of decisions. So, so that's one cause. That's one cause of remaining weak in the faith. If you want to be strong in the faith, be somewhere, listen to, be under the hearing of good Bible teaching or, or biblical teaching of the Word of God, whereby the Word of God is opened and it's taught and it ex- explained what it means by what it says. Don't tune in to those on the radio or those on the internet or those on some form through book form or otherwise who just give simple moralistic answers to things that have no real meaning. Don't take the Bible like that. If you're going to be strong, actually strong, you need to hear and you need to heed where the Bible is taught and explained. You need to not just hear it, you need to heed it. Do it, right? The one who grows in Christ is the effectual doer of the word. He isn't a hearer only, as James said. So that's one factor that contributes to weak faith or those who are weak in the faith. They, they're untaught. They, they, they just don't know. But there's another contributing factor, another contributing factor, and it's this. How long someone has been saved. How long someone has been saved? Now, obviously, there's no guarantee of that, right? There's no guarantee, but it is a factor. It is a factor in the life of a Christian. And you say, why do you say that? I say that because we're all born spiritual babies. We're all born spiritual babies. And therefore, being spiritual babies, we don't know everything. We don't know everything. We we need to grow. We need to develop. We need to have our uh, spiritual muscles strengthened. We need to be fed, and we need to be nurtured as spiritual children. In fact, that's the whole reason, by the way, if you've never thought about it, that's the whole reason we have the New Testament epistles as a church. God gave us the New Testament epistles in the Bible so that we might grow. It's exactly what Ephesians chapter 4 says. There have been given to the church elders and pastors for the equipping of the saints, for the building up of the body, for the growth of the whole. Individually, we grow and the group grows. So those who are church leaders, those who are church pastors, cannot be novices in the faith. They can't be spiritual babies in the faith. That's what Paul says to Timothy in qualifications for leaders in the church. Don't lay your hands on someone who's a novice in the faith, someone who's a baby in spirituality. Those who are leading in the church must be those who are spiritually mature in knowledge and experience. Well, you're only going to get that over time. You're only going to get that over time. And even the secular world understands that reality. Even the secular world. You don't go to a college to learn from those who are uneducated. Now, we might debate that today. We might debate that in colleges around the globe where there are those who are teaching people who we might say are uneducated. But you understand the point, right? They are educated in the discipline for which you are studying under, and you go to that person because they have a knowledge, they have an experience. I would never get on an airplane and fly across the globe unless the person in the cockpit had been trained, had the experience and the knowledge to do what they do. So our secular world even understands this. And so when it comes to the church and how long we have been saved how long we have been practicing and learning, 
Both of those are factors in spiritual growth. Both of those are factors for which you can grow to be strong in the faith and not remain weak in the faith. Right? Now, somebody's surely going to say, I know somebody who's been a Christian for a long time. They, they got saved when they were a kid. Now they're an older person in life, and they're still a baby Christian. Sadly, that's true. Sadly, that effect has happened in the church. But why? Why has that happened? Well, I say because of this third factor. This third factor. One is they're not hearing biblical truth, potentially. Two is they, they haven't been saved that long. And three, if they have been saved like long, this third factor affects their growth. And is this, the diligence and application of what we hear from the Bible in our Christian lives. Let me say it again. The diligence and the application of what we hear from Scripture being practiced in our lives. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in chapter 12, verse Two, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You may have heard of Lot. You may have even sat in a good church and heard a lot of true biblical teaching. And yet, personally, you've taken no diligence no reality of applying those things in your life. Your mind has never really been renewed. It's intellectual. It's at the same level intellectually. And so you stay weak. Reality is that when we are saved, we are given life. We're given life. We are given the spirit. And our minds are in one aspect being renewed, but if we neglect the Scriptures, if we neglect to listen to the preaching of the Scriptures, we will not grow. We will not grow. And as a result, we are going to be weak in the faith. This is exactly what Paul was saying to the Corinthian believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. He said, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men. Why? I had to speak to you as men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. You see the correlation? Babes in Christ, doesn't matter how long you've professed faith in Christ, you're a babe in Christ, you're like someone in the flesh. It's almost as if you're unsaved, even though you're saved. You're an infant in Christ. He says, I gave you milk to drink and not solid food. Why? Because you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now he says you're not able. For why? You're still acting fleshly. You're still living in an unchristian way. You're still living weak in the flesh, weak in the faith. Since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? You see, strong in the faith is is someone who's living out, who's practicing the realities of what God has said and who is looking at other people through those eyes with humility in their own heart. Paul says to the Corinthians, you're not doing that. In other words, I can't even give you what I desire to give you and what you need because you haven't developed. You haven't grown. You're still an infant. Writer of Hebrews says similar words, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 to 14, speaking about Jesus Christ, he says, concerning him, we have much to say. He says, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, think about how long that is. Think about how long someone must have been saved. They have been saved a long time. By this time, you should be one who's teaching other people. You should be in that place of strong in the faith, mature in your Christian life, someone who isn't in the category of novice when it comes to spiritual things, someone people look at in a church to be a leader, and yet here you are. You ought to be a teacher, Paul says. You 
have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. That's not where you should be. You're you're there by neglect. You're there by because you haven't put into practice what you have heard. And you can't even have solid food. He says, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant, spiritually infant. Solid food is for the mature, who because of practice, you see, putting what you hear, putting what you know, putting the things you've learned into practice. They have, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. There it is. Now you can make a decision. Now you can make a right decision when it comes to others, when you look at others, and when you come to practices, and when, when your practices reflect and have a reflection or a deflection of the gospel to others, and that means both in the lives of Christians and non-Christians, what am I supposed to do? Well, you'll have discernment on what to do, and the best action of what to do when you know the Word of God. And you're not an infant to the Word. And so this is the entire point. point is that if we neglect the means of growth that God has given to us, we fail to use them and to engage ourselves in them. Bible study, Bible reading, time in the Word of God, time with the people of God, worshiping God through the study of His Word, hearing the Word of God taught and explained by what God means by what He says. If we neglect these things, if we fail to engage in them, all of the things that are meant to make us strong in the faith will do us no good. They'll do us no good. And all we're going to do is remain weak. We're going to carry ourselves as if we're strong. We're going to think, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm strong in the faith. Oh, yeah, I know Jesus Christ. Oh, I read my Bible. I'm strong in the faith. I can't believe those people would do those things. In all reality, what we are is we're weak in the faith. The only person we're deceiving is ourselves because we're actually judging wrongly other people. Wrongly. And I believe that's one of the greatest problems in the evangelical church today. Why so many churches have so many issues between Christians. Why Christians can't seem to get along with each other. Why they're fighting with each other all the time. Why so many are taken away by strange winds of doctrine that come and blow through evangelicalism and no one can discern what it is. It's because they've neglected these factors. Untaught people who have not practiced even what they have heard who have not grown, believing all along that they're strong, when in fact they're weak. And so this is what Paul is speaking to us about. This is what Paul is beginning to address here in chapter 14. Mature, strong Christians behaving properly toward those who are weak, ready for the return of Christ as we adorn the gospel of Christ so that we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is exactly what he says in chapter 15, verse 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. What are those strong Christians specifically to do? How are they to live in the Christian realm in today's world among Christians with one another when it comes to these gray issues of life. How are we to do it? We're going to get to that next time. Time flies when you're having fun. This is good stuff. The doctrine, the principle of deferring. The strong Christian 
exercising deference for the sake of the weak. Doesn't mean on everything. Doesn't mean we defer where sin is. Doesn't mean we don't address issues. But it's a principle that should over be the overarching principle that should drive us when it comes to the gray areas of life, when it comes to issues between each other, that there's no clear commands in Scripture, but which we have to make decisions about each and every day. And how we respond to one another in the church will be a great example of the gospel. We don't want to be God in the lives of other people for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, so much for this rich, rich passage. Lord, I pray that these things have been clear in our minds. I pray that as we think about these things, this, this general overview, if you will, these, these truths that Paul is beginning to address, I pray that we would understand at least what we've heard this morning that it would be the seedbed, that it would be the foundation, it would be the very thing on which these other truths grow in our hearts and lives, so that we, who are Christians, who want to obey and want to walk diligently before you, will have our conscience bound to what it needs to be bound to. Not in a hypersensitive way and not in an overzealous liberal kind of way, but when it comes to the exercise of our life, the exercise of even our Christian freedoms, that we as mature Christians, will show that freedom by not what we do, but really by what we forego for the sake of the weak. So, Lord, bring us back to here next Lord's Day that we might worship you again through the study of your word, understanding these truths. Help us apply what we've heard even this day, reading this passage, thinking about it, mulling over even this week, these truths for the sake of your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.